turn in your Bibles this afternoon to 1 Timothy chapter number 1. 1 Timothy chapter number 1. There we are. And, uh, man, that was good. I appreciate all the labor and hard work that went into allowing that meal to take place. And, you know, that's not just feeding uh, our faces. Amen. That's part of it. And uh, I, I sure uh, know that we enjoy that. But it's an opportunity for fellowship, for God's people to grow closer to each other, and spend time with each other. I grew up in a good Bible church, and um, I don't take what I'm about to say as a criticism of the church I grew up in, but I very much grew up in a church where folks showed up, sat down, listened, got up, went home. And uh, I went to church with people my entire life, and I couldn't have told you what they did for a living. I couldn't have told you if they had any kids. I couldn't have told you uh, what their opinions, perspectives were about things. And uh, one of the things that God really laid on my heart when I started pastoring is I wanted our church, and thankfully Walridge was already this way. I didn't really have to make it this way, but I wanted our church to be the kind of place where folks knew one another. Now, when you got folks that know each other and love each other, there's always a little bit of, of messiness that comes with that. But I think it's worth it for God's people to be knit together in heart. Amen. And so I appreciate the fact that uh, so many labored and made that meal today possible, not just because it was good food and an opportunity to sit and eat, but it was an opportunity for God's people to uh, grow closer to one another. And so from my pastor's heart, thank you so much for that. First Timothy chapter number one, I'm, I want you to pray for me this afternoon. I'm going to try to do the only thing in the world that's harder than preaching to hungry people is preaching to full people. Amen. And so I need your prayers this afternoon as we endeavor to do uh, the difficult, if not impossible. First Timothy chapter number 1, I'd like to read seven verses beginning in verse number 1, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. First Timothy chapter number 1, verse number 1, the Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this afternoon. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Thank you for what you did in our hearts this morning. And thank you for the labors and the investment of those that made today possible. Lord, I pray that you'd bless them especially minister your grace and your abundance to them particularly. Lord, I pray that you would take these next few moments and that you'd uplift Jesus Christ through them. I pray that you would arrest our hearts and minds and attention. Lord, I pray you give us a biblical worldview. I pray that you'd cultivate in us biblical knowledge. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the mind of Christ that we might please you in all things. Bless our time together this afternoon. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice with me verse number 6. Paul, writing to the young pastor Timothy, warns him against becoming distracted in his message. And he points to some that have allowed that to take place in their ministry. And he says this, From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. I bet you didn't know that the word swerve is a good King James Bible word. It's probably a word that many of us use, if not on a daily basis, probably at least on a weekly basis. We will find ourselves speaking of someone swerving in and out of traffic. We'll speak of ourselves maybe swerving as we are walking to try to avoid some danger or some pitfall. And I was interested when I read this epistle to Timothy to find this word swerve here in our text. It's interesting, particularly when you look a little deeper at the word, because you'll find that this same idea is used two other times, both of them in epistles to Timothy. It's used one other time in this very epistle in chapter number 6, and then it's used in 2 Timothy chapter number 2 concerning some that have departed from the faith. I want us to consider for a moment the usage of that word swerve. And I want to preach to you on this thought, don't swerve. 
In other words, you and I are set on a course, on a trajectory, and I hope that that course and trajectory is a biblical one. I believe we can be a biblical Christian. I believe we can live biblical lives. And I believe the Word of God teaches us how to be biblical in our worldview. And I'll tell you, we live in a world that is consistently fascinated by some new thing. I remember, uh, you know, it, it's always funny to me, you drive down the road and, and, you know, public safety is something that's spoken much of in our day. And I guess that's good. We've got a lot of cars on the road and far less people that know how to drive them competently. And But it's always interesting to me that the same people that are constantly telling you not to take your eyes off the road are constantly uh, peppering the hillside with random flashing lights and signs to draw your attention from the road. It's even funny, you'll be driving down the road and we've got these big signs. I guess most every state has them, but here TDOT puts them up. And I I was driving down the road one day and I was paying attention to traffic. I took my eyes off the car in front of me to look up and read a sign from the state of Tennessee Department of Transportation that said, be sure to keep your eyes on the road. That's government in action right there, people. And so there's a lot of talk about not swerving, the dangers of swerving, the dangers of taking your eyes off the road and finding yourself in some sort of accident. And, you know, while I understand that the Apostle Paul didn't have the modern automobile in mind whenever the Holy Ghost placed pen in his hand and pressed this word upon his heart, I do think that there is a principle here that is still in force in your life and in my life. It's funny, all those signs on the road that distract you, what are they trying to do? You drive up and down the road, you see billboards everywhere. You'll never see a billboard for a place that's past the exit where the place is located. Why? What are they trying to do? They're trying to draw you off of your course and to a new destination. And oftentimes, we as human beings are so susceptible to that temptation But it's not confined only to explicit matters of where we drive our car to and the various road signage that we see. But I would say that even in a spiritual sense, there is great pressure today for God's people to swerve from the path of correct doctrine and find them distracted away to other, sometimes extraneous, sometimes extra-scriptural, sometimes anti-scriptural topics and matters. I'll tell you, you say, preacher, what do we need? What what do I need to do for my family? Don't swerve. Get on the path of biblical truth and just stay there. But preacher, haven't you heard about this new movement? Don't worry about that new movement. You just don't swerve. Preacher, didn't you hear about that new church that opened up? Hey, don't worry about that new church. You just don't swerve. Preacher, didn't you hear about that new book that came out? Hey, listen, the best thing you can do is get in this book and don't swerve. Let's think about that for just a few moments this afternoon. I promise I won't trespass not only on your patience, but on your stomach. Amen. Because I know you're you're ready to uh, get home. Let me notice a few things. Let me ask this simple question first. What does it mean to swerve? You know, until you've defined something, you can't really talk about it. And so what does it mean to swerve? Well, I would say this. A simple definition of swerve could be given in these two thoughts. To swerve means, number one, a sudden change in direction. You're going one direction, but then all of the sudden, you turn and go a different direction. Boy, I tell you, that's a problem in modern-day Christianity. There's people that have gone in a direction for a lot of years, and then all of a sudden, something happens. All of a sudden, something comes into their life, and they change direction. Man, let me tell you, what a tragedy it is. And I've seen this happen oftentimes with pastors, with preachers, with evangelists, people in ministry, that they have held fast, they have stood uh, to the uh, faith, they have stood on what is true and what is right, and then all of a sudden, man, something will come along and they'll swerve. Their kids will go liberal, they'll swerve. They're, they're, hey, listen, the church will, will fall apart, they'll swerve. They'll, their health will start to fail and they'll swerve. And then all of a sudden, they've been on a path, they've been on a direction, it's been right for 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years, but for some reason, they've decided they need a change in direction. They've swerved and gone a different way. But then I would say it's not only a sudden change in direction, but it also involves a sudden departure from your course. In other words, you're running in a lane, you're on a trajectory, you're headed to a destination. But when you swerve, you are deviating from that expected end. 
You know, one of the things that's fascinating about modern technology is modern GPS technology. I mean, man, it's so far ahead of where it was even when I started driving. I, when I started driving, and most of you know I'm, I'm not old, but I first graced the road 20 years ago. And, and when I first started driving, nobody had GPS. We all just printed out uh, maps on MapQuest. My wife still has a great affinity for paper maps. Anytime we take a road trip, she's got something folded out uh, 12 feet wide and, and looking at it. And she's got atlases, and she loves stuff like that. And Whenever I started driving, it was common. You, you could get online, you could get directions, but that was it, and we'd print them out. And I still remember printing out pages and pages of MapQuest directions. I'll still say today, I don't say Google Map that, I say MapQuest that. Amen. That's showing your age, I guess. MapQuest that. And then a great many of you were raised in a generation where even the technology of GPS wasn't something beyond maybe something government agencies had in some respect, but it wasn't a common thing. But nowadays, man, it's incredible. You can get on that Google Maps, and it'll literally tell you. I don't know how government allows this, but it will tell you where to watch out for the speed traps. I, listen, I'm not for big tech, but I'm for that. Amen? <laughs> and one of the things that it does that's incredible is because of real-time information, if you punch your coordinates in of where you're wanting to go, put your address in, it'll tell you when you're supposed to get there. And because of the way that maps are updated on a, a real-time basis nowadays, there's very little question most of the time whether you're going to get there or what the right route is or where you should go. When me and my wife were on a road trip just back of this, we were driving home, our GPS, uh, we were using Google Maps, and it kept changing our course. Everywhere we go, I don't know if there's wrecks happening. I don't know if they're trying to funnel us into, you know, some kind of, I don't even know what they're doing. But every time we turn around, it would have changed our course. And what's happening? You're swerving, you're departing from your plotted course. And you say, well, preacher, that's interesting and, and cute the way that it's presented, but what does that have to do with my life? Well, here's the question. If people spiritually swerve, then why do people do it? If people that have been living for God, standing on biblical truth, doing what's right, maintaining biblical standards, if they swerve and deviate, why do they do that? Well, I think it's the same reason people swerve even in their automobiles. I would say this, that the number one reason that most people swerve is they swerve out of avoidance. Most of the time when people swerve, they're trying to miss something. Something has got in their path that they don't want to interact with, that they don't want to face, that they don't want to come into contact with. And instead of staying on that path and meeting it, they swerve out of the way. Now, let me say, if a deer jumps out in front of your car, don't be a hero, swerve. But spiritually speaking, a great many people swerve from biblical truth because they're trying to avoid something. They've got a problem in their life. They've got some issue that has arisen. They've got some sin that they have ingrained and entrenched themselves in. And rather than facing that, they would sooner swerve away from biblical truth to allow themselves to maintain that in their life. Say, well, preacher, what do you do if something's in your way? You run into it or you run over it or you run through it. Amen? You say, well, preacher, what do I do if I've got some issue in my life, some sin in my life? What can I do about that? Well, don't run from it. Instead, take that thing to the Lord. Run over it, run through it, run past it, run it out of the way, but bring it to the Lord. What a tragedy it would be for you to change everything about your life just to accommodate some sin that you have found pleasurable to you. You know, here's the reality. When a person swerves, they, and I'm, I'm preaching my message before I preach my message, but they deviate from more than just what they're trying to avoid. They deviate from more than what they're trying to avoid. I've seen this happen a lot of times, particularly, and I hope I'm never in this situation. If I am, I hope I stand to the truth of, of the Word of God, and I hope I honor Christ in my decision. But I've seen a great many preachers who either because their ministry was failing or because of uh, their family and some sin and some uh, disgrace on their family's part that have thrown out all biblical standards and completely renovated their manner of ministry to try to some way accommodate that matter. You better be careful. There might be something worse where you're swerving than there is where you're headed. In your life, don't swerve away from biblical truth. You say, but preacher, people might not understand. It don't matter. Only God has to understand you. You say, but preacher, I, what if somebody gets mad at me? Well, they may get mad at you, but that'd be better than you making shipwreck of your life. You say, but preacher, I may lose somebody in my life. Well, you may lose them in your life, but you don't want to lose the presence and help of the Lord in your life. So some people, they swerve out of avoidance. They're trying to avoid something 
that's inconvenient or uncomfortable in their life, some sin they don't want to deal with or some problem they don't want to face. And so they depart from biblical truth. But then I would say, number two, some swerve out of negligence. I remember the first time we went out west several years ago, we were uh, driving. We had never done that before. We had never done any kind of road trip before. And uh, our missionaries on the Indian Reservation, the Trivets, they called and they wanted me to come up and preach. And I said, well, you know, if I'm going to drive all the way up there, I'm going to see some stuff. And so we sort of just made a road trip out of it. We drove up, went to the Badlands and saw the missionaries and, and you know, ministered to them, helped them a little bit. Then we left there and we drove. It's about an eight-hour drive from there over to Yellowstone. I said, I'm probably never going to see Yellowstone again. I'd love to go over and I'd love to see it. And so we drove over to Yellowstone. We spent a few days there. And one of the things, and those of you that have been there will know this. If you've not, this may be new to you. But one of the things about it, nothing's close. It's a massive swath of land, Yellowstone National Park is. And where we stayed in Cody, Wyoming, you'd have to drive an hour before you got in the park proper. And then the park is designed almost like a figure eight. And it takes about four hours to drive the northern loop. And it takes about four hours to drive the southern loop, counting for bison and idiots and so on and so forth. And so we decided we were going to go one day. We got up early in the morning, and Schofield wasn't born yet. We had Lawrence with us. He was a little fella. And we jumped in the rental car, and we said, we're going to go. And one of the things we want to do is see the Grand Tetons. Now, the Grand Tetons are not in Yellowstone National Park. They're south of Yellowstone National Park. And by the time that we had driven, we said, if we're going to drive all that way, let's drive the northern loop. By the time we had drove an hour in, Three to four hours over, and then another like four or five hours down, we had been on the road for an unbelievable amount of time. Funny thing about it, you can't just click your heels and get back to your hotel room. You get that far away, you got to drive that far back. And so it was late in the evening, and we still had probably another five hours ahead of us of driving. I told my wife, I said, we better head back. It's going to be late as it is. And so I found myself driving through Yellowstone National Park at about 12.30 or 1 a.m. in the morning. Now, that may not seem like a lot to you, but you've never had an elk walk out in front of your car. Amen? And I was tired. I was worn out. My wife, she promised me. She swore to me she'd stay awake. Promised me on our our marriage that she'd stay awake. I counted. That lasted six and a half minutes. She was out like a light. And so I was driving all these hours back in one of the most active wildlife parks in the entire world, at about 12.30, 1 o'clock at night, when all the nocturnal and teethy animals come out, all the way back through the park, Cody, Wyoming. And there were dangers. Of course, there was a danger that we could have some buffalo or some elk step out in front of us or some bear swallow our car or something. But one of the big dangers was, man, I was tired. And, I, man, I mean, me and the Lord, we did some talking on that trip back. Not because I'm spiritual, because I don't want to fall asleep. <laughs> Had the window down, you know, radio up. She slept through all of it like she's dead to the world. Doing something, because here's what I didn't want. I didn't want to start to nod off and swerve off the road. Sometimes you swerve because there's something in your way you're trying to avoid. But sometimes if you're just not paying attention, you can find the road goes one way and you go another way. What's the danger of swerving? I got a message. I'm going to preach it in a second. Don't get nervous. You're full of soup. You're good. You ain't going to die. What's the danger of swerving? Well, it's funny because our text gives us a little information about that. Actually, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read this to you. Verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. One of the occasions of the usage of this same word and idea, Paul says this, But shun profane and vain babblings, For they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, same word as swerve, they've erred, saying that the resurrection is past already. Now I want you to notice this next phrase, and overthrow the faith of some. You know, part of the reason you want to be real careful you don't swerve is because you don't want to wreck. When you depart the safe course, you increase the odds that you will have an accident, that you'll wreck, that you'll total that car, that you'll kill yourself, that you'll kill your loved ones, that you'll kill someone else. And I would say this, part of the danger of swerving is the destruction you could meet. What you believe matters. What you believe will dictate how your family turns out. What you believe will dictate how your kids turn out. 
What you believe will dictate how this church is. What you believe will dictate what your marriage is like. What you believe will determine what your testimony is like. Preacher, why is it so important that I don't swerve? Because make no mistake about it. Hey, listen, everybody that's saved is getting to heaven, but they ain't all getting there in the same shape. Everybody that's saved is getting to heaven. But they ain't all going to have the same testimony, the same legacy, the same impact, and the same rewards when they get there. Here's what you could do. You could make a wreck of your life. I would say the destruction that you could meet is one of the dangers. But then, I want you to notice something. The Bible says in verse number 5 of our text, look what he, he says. He says, now the end of the commandment. Now, what commandment is Paul talking about? Well, he's just told Timothy. He's saying, I left you at Ephesus so that you could set everybody straight. So that you could tell people that they ought to stick to the word of God and teach no other doctrine. That they ought not get mired in all these other extraneous things. And he says, the end of the commandment is this. In other words, this is why I told you to do that. And then he lists three things. He says, charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. It's funny, even mature Christians sometimes treat God like His will for our lives is really His whim for our lives. Like it really don't matter how we live, but God's just setting up in heaven and Him being God, He needs somebody to boss, so He's picked you and I. But you know that's not true. Everything God desires and designs for your life is for your good, for your blessing, and for your benefit. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. I left you there to teach these people these things. Why? Because there is much dependent on what they believe. And if they will stick to the stuff, and if they'll not swerve, and if they'll teach biblical truth, and if they'll live biblical lives, it'll produce some things in them. You know, one of the great tragedies of swerving, you say, but preacher, I might never run into anything. You might not. But here's the question. It's not just the destruction you could meet. It's the destination you could miss. Part of the danger of swerving is not just you might send her a tree or a telephone pole. Part of the danger is you swerve enough, you ain't going to get where you's planning on going. God has somewhere He's planning on you going. And I don't mean heaven when I say that. I mean He has a plan for your life. He has a desire that He aspires to for you, for your life to be under His glory and under His honor. What are some of the destinations you might miss? Well, I would say this. One is sincere devotion. He says, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. You know, part of the reason it's so important that we stay in biblical truth is so that we can love the Lord the right way. I know that often when we say, love Him like He deserves, we shrink from saying that because we all rightly recognize that nobody could love Him like He deserves. But I would say this, He deserves a lot more than a lot of the ways that a lot of us love Him. Charity out of a pure heart heart, a sincere devotion to Him. Part of the problem with wrong doctrine is it robs you of sincerity. Robs you of sincerity. How are we going to love the Lord with all our heart, with a pure heart, with a right heart, if we don't even love His Word enough to make it the guide and governor of our life? Sincere devotion. He says the second thing, and of a good conscience. A good conscience. Now, what does he mean when he says a good conscience? Knowing you've done all you can do to please the Lord. That's how we have a good conscience. Our conscience is not the ultimate bellwether in our life. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. But conscience is not irrelevant either. God has cleansed, purified, sprinkled our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And hey, there's something to be said for being able to say, I'm not perfect, but I'm giving it all I've got. One of the things Paul had noticed about these that deviated and swerved into wrong doctrine is it robbed them of their singular dedication. It wasn't just about pleasing Him anymore. Let me tell you something. Christianity gets a lot more simple when all we're concerned with is pleasing Him. Pleasing Him. Now, I understand the people and I understand opinions. I understand people's influence. But at the end of the day, if you can distill this thing of living life down to simply saying, if I please Him, everything else will follow. I'm not saying you please Him and you won't please your family. I'm not saying you please Him and you won't please your friends. I'm not saying you please Him and you won't please the authorities or the, the, the uh, you know, bosses, employers, people like that in your life. I'm saying if you'll please Him, then if it don't please them, you don't have to worry about it. A singular dedication. And then he says this, a faith unfeigned. What does unfeigned mean? 
It means sincere, truthful, or pure. I would say this, that, that Paul says, part of the reason I've taught you these things, part of what I'm desiring for you is sincere devotion, charity out of a pure heart, singular dedication of a good conscience and sound doctrine. He says, faith unfeigned. You know, a lot of the heretical movements in the day that we live in are not distinctly pagan in nature. They have been rooted in Christian concepts, but they have been intermingled with unscriptural things. Part of the reason a lot of times when you look and, and all you have to do is just turn on TBN and see the rogues gallery and, 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 and <laughs> see all the faith healers wearing their eyeglasses and everything. And you say, well, preacher, what is that? Yeah, you ever heard somebody preach or heard somebody teach and thought something's not right about that? And you struggled to put your finger on it. You couldn't really describe. It's not that what they were saying was necessarily untrue, but the level of emphasis they were giving to the wrong aspect of it, the things that should have been said that weren't said, the things that should have been characterized and categorized that weren't categorized, and the impression they distinctly left you with was not a biblical one. Can I say this? Hey, the devil don't just have his preachers preaching by what they say. He has them preaching by what they won't say as well. Oftentimes, and you can read in the book of Colossians about things that can pervert and corrupt the purity of biblical faith. It's not because there is no foundation or core principle of Christianity there, but it's because it's been so perverted and corrupted by extraneous ideals and extraneous influences that it no longer resembles biblical Christianity. Can I remind you that the church at Galatia, when Paul wrote to them, they had another gospel. It was a gospel, but it was another gospel. You understand, they had a good news. It just wasn't the Bible's good news. They had teaching. It just wasn't biblical teaching. They had their copyright, trademark truth, but it wasn't the truth. Oftentimes, the great danger is, man, it's not just the things that you might find yourself mired in, but it's the things that you miss. God wants you to understand the Bible. I'm not saying that there won't be things that you don't understand about the Bible. Undoubtedly, till we have the mind of Christ, uh, that, that will always be the case. But this book is not a puzzle book. God wants you to read it and to understand it. So with that in mind, I want to give you three things, and then I'll be done. Three things that I think from our text and the other usages of this word, three things that cause people to swerve. I ain't even going to preach them. You don't believe that. But I ain't even going to preach them. I'm just going to read them to you. Let's look again at our text. What was the thing that caused them to swerve in 1 Timothy chapter number 1? Well, notice how Paul begins, verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. Paul will go on to tell them what the commandment of God and godly truth will do. We've already read it. Verse 5, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Here's what Paul puts his thumb on the pulse of. He says, you've got a bunch of people there that is teaching without saying anything. You've got a bunch of people there that are trafficking in knowledge without teaching truth. They're spending all their time on fables. What does he mean when he says fables? Well, likely what he had in mind is probably the Jewish Talmud and many extra scriptural things that are not rooted in biblical truth. You say, well, why would you believe that, preacher? Because the next phrase, he says, in endless genealogies. Gentiles ain't keeping track of their genealogies. <laughs> you say, well, where'd you come from? Dead dog. That's all I am. Nothing but bootleggers and, and tax cheats in my history. Amen. <laughs> but here was the problem. Uh, let me just say it this way. Preacher, what is it that causes people to swerve? I'd say, number one, it is fruitless discussions. Let me say it this way, speculative religion, knowledge for knowledge's sake, that does not produce godly edifying, which is in faith. Notice the purity of sound teaching in these opening verses. He says this, here's what you need to teach them. You don't need to teach them that they also teach other doctrines. 
You don't need to teach them that they occasionally teach other doctrines. He says you need to charge them that they teach no other doctrine. What does he mean when he says doctrine? Well, he means particularly the teaching of the word of God as it applies to what God had revealed through the apostles. In other words, what the Old Testament communicating with New Testament truth that had been revealed had established and set forth a system of faith that was rightly understood in the New Testament church at that time and had been communicated by the apostles in the early church. When he says doctrine, he's saying, my doctrine. He's saying the things I've taught you. He's saying I've taken the Old Testament and explained it in light of Calvary and in light of the truth of what Christ has done. And I've shown you how that Christ is the end of righteousness to everyone which believeth. I've taught you how that the law having a function and purpose was never the end of God's plan for humanity. And he says now all you people are doing is sitting around debating about who has a better pedigree and who has a better story to tell. He says no, you need to stick to the truth of the authoritative word of God. I'll tell you, churches should traffic in biblical truth. Even even if anything beyond it were not nefarious, and I'm not convinced that it's not, it's at best a waste of time. I don't know about you, man. I mean, I the, listen, I ain't a brain surgeon or nothing, but my time's more valuable than to sit around and hear people pontificate about things that they ain't got no Bible to prove one way or the other. Purity of sound teaching. Notice verse 6. You say, well, preacher, what does it hurt? I, and there are a great many churches today that I think are enamored, enamored with the idea of intellectualism. The idea of finding some grain of hidden truth that nobody else knows about. Some proprietary truth or knowledge that they can impart to you that, that makes them better than the church down the road. You say, well, preacher, is that harmless? I mean, you know, if somebody wants to traffic in those things, what does it really hurt? As long as they're not saying something that might cause me to not believe in the Lord. Well, here's the problem. Uh, when you reduce your Christianity to a speculative exercise, when all it is about is flexing your intellectual muscle, when it is about nothing more than the crude and gross staring into things that cannot be known and cannot be biblically provable one way or the other, it will wreck your faith. You'll get used to coming to church and not hearing from God. You'll get used to reading your Bible and not looking for God. You'll look for answers. You'll look for mysteries. You'll look for interesting things. But you won't look for God in any of them. And here's what happened to these people. Notice the pitfall of speculative teaching. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. See, if your standard is not biblical truth, you'll probably listen to just about anything. Where's the standard? Where's the metric? Is it merely the man that is the most charismatic? He's the one that we listen to? Is it merely the man that claims to have the most interesting proprietary information? Is that the person whose feet we sit at? Well, you see, God's given us a very clear biblical standard for this. We're not looking to men's opinions and perspectives. We're looking to the authoritative truth of the Word of God. And so there's one simple question we have to ask. Show me in my Bible. Show me in my Bible. Show me in my Bible. You're teaching me something. Show me in my Bible and teach me from the word of God. Notice he goes on to say this, desiring to be teachers of the law. That's weird. Desiring to be teachers. Why would they want to be teachers of the law? Why? What's the interest in that? Well, because it's a way for them to express their intellectualism. See, here's the truth. When they said the law, they didn't mean the 39 books of the Old Testament. They meant the 39 books of the Old Testament and the literally hundreds of volumes of rabbinical teachings and speculation that were also encompassed in. By the way, the charismatics are bad about this. If you don't believe me, turn on TBN, listen to them talk about all the wonderful, amazing mysteries they understand about the Jewish religion, not a one of which you'll find in your Bible. Well, that's not new with the charismatics. They picked up on that. But that was the case even in this day. Much Gnosticism was rooted in Jewish mysticism of the time that didn't resemble anything that looked like Old Testament faith, but it became the currency that was trafficked in by Bible teachers in that day. And Paul's telling Timothy, don't you get dragged into that. They desire to be teachers of the law. And then I like what he says, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Paul says, I was a teacher of the law. I know the law. I can, I can just imagine. I can see Paul walking into one of these one of these conferences, one of these breakout sessions, and looking some guy up there, sixty five years old, bleach blonde hair and cut off shorts, trying to educate him. 
about all the mysterious things, the Jewish religion that nobody out there understands except, you know, him and, and, you know, Perry Stone. And, and I can just imagine Paul sitting there and thinking, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're saying this, and notice his next phrase, he says, nor whereof they affirm. He's saying, you, you not only don't know what you're saying, you don't know what you're saying's what you're saying. You not only don't understand the literal things you're saying, you don't understand what's being implied by what you're saying. Much of this fascination with Jewish dietary laws and, 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 and Jewish principles and Jewish concepts, uh, people don't understand. They think, well, you know, there's something interesting. There's a fascination. It's a cultural thing. But you understand that all those things were rooted in spiritual truth at the time. And to go back to those things is to rebuild again the things and make ourselves a transgressor. You understand that? Well, here's the problem. They didn't understand that. They just thought it was really fascinating and illuminating and everybody loved to come to their synagogue sessions to hear them talk about these things. And Paul says, here's the danger. You'll start to traffic in things that you don't even understand. It will lead you down. Let me tell you, there, there's a... I said I wasn't going to preach. I don't know if I will or not. There, there's a... There's a I've often used the phrase theological consequence. You say, preacher, what is theological consequence? Well, it's this, very simply. It's a logical principle, really. If I believe A, that will lead me to believe B, which will lead me to believe C. In other words, my beliefs are not on an island under themselves. They are not insulated. They're not separated away like a big sheet of bubble wrap where you can pop one bubble but not another. Instead, all these things are interconnected. See, it's not just beliefs, it's a belief system. And all those things bear upon each other. The problem with trafficking in things that are not biblical is it's going to affect the things that you believe that are biblical. Pretty soon you'll find yourself questioning things that you would have never thought you would have questioned. Because if you're a thinking person, very often a great many of these biblical truths, if they are dislodged, you will find yourself questioning things that with a biblical perspective you would have never had any reason to wonder about or to question. He's saying this, they're teaching things, and they're just teaching them because they sound good. They're teaching them because they draw a crowd. But those things can actually shipwreck your faith. You ought to be careful. You, you ought to be more careful who you'll listen to preach than you are where you'll take your car to have the oil changed. My soul. Most people's perspective on biblical teaching is that it's all good, and there's something to be gotten that's good out of all of it. That's not true. And oftentimes, even what good you may draw out of it, will not outweigh the bad that it can pour into your life. You ought to be selective in who you listen to. You ought to be selective in what you read. You ought to be selective in who you follow. Say, well, preacher, how do I know? Then ask yourself this. Show me in my Bible. Show me in my Bible. I don't want to hear what Rabbi so-and-so said in the 12th century. Show me in my Bible. I don't want to hear about some anecdotal note about some religious movement that happened. I, I want you to show me in my Bible. Show me in the Word of God. If that's our standard, and if that standard is too strict, I'll just be too strict. I'll just be too strict. You all right? Go ahead and burp and feel better. (laughs) Notice the purpose of scriptural teaching, verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good. That's interesting, isn't it? But we know that the law is good. Paul just said they desire to be teachers of the law, and that's a problem. Then he says, we know the law is good. Well, he explains it. He says, if a man use it lawfully. You see, using the law lawfully in the Old Testament dispensation involved applying explicitly the truths of that law to the everyday practice of your life if you were a Jew. That was using it lawfully at the time. But now Christ Jesus has been made the end of righteousness to everyone which believeth. Now... A, a new and better way has been made, a new and better covenant through his through, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now there's a new testament because there's been the death of the testator. Now all that's changed. So now how do we use it lawfully? Well, he says this, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. (laughs) 
He says, the law is not a seedbed for sound doctrine per se, but rather the law is given as a standard to disclose and reveal the unrighteousness of man per sound doctrine. In other words, he's saying it's not given as a guiding principle of your life. Now, you say, well, now, preacher, there's things in the Old Yeah, listen, I preached on the Old Testament this morning. I understand there's moral truth in the Old Testament. I understand that there's things that certainly, and I probably preach more out of the Old Testament than I have out of the New Testament over 14 years of pastoring. But to take those things and say explicitly, this is the measure and metric of my life in the same way that the Jewish Old Testament believers were following God and pursuing in those things is to disregard Calvary, the most important moment in all of human history. And so he says this, the law's fine. If you use it lawfully, well, what was the primary function of the law? That the whole world would become guilty, that every mouth would be stopped, and the whole world would become guilty before God. He said, these people are trafficking in, in these things, and they're saying, if you do these things, it'll make you feel better. And yet God says, that the reason I gave the law was not so that you could do them and feel better, it's so that you could fail at them and feel worse. I gave these things to disclose and to reveal to you that you are lawless, that you are rebels, that you are reprobates, that in your life you don't naturally do those things. The problem with speculative teaching is it doesn't bear fruit in our lives. It doesn't produce the desired biblical result. Biblical truth produces biblical results when it's biblically applied in our life. So I would say this. <laughs> few fruitless discussions can cause people to swerve. It can cause them to get out of the, the lane of biblical truth. But then look with me in chapter 6. Chapter number 6. Don't worry, this next point will go better. Chapter 6. Verse 20, still talking to Timothy, still talking to this young preacher. It's almost like young preachers and people in ministry, they need to understand the importance of not swerving. But not just that, he's telling Timothy to tell church people this. And the Holy Ghost undoubtedly knew that church people would read this, that more church people would read this than pastors would read it. And so it's not just church, uh, it's not just pastors, but it's all people. They need to understand it. So here's what he says, verse 20. He says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. I would say that one of the things that causes men to swerve is fruitless discussions, but I would say, number two, foolish distractions can cause people to swerve. I'm talking about intellectually, biblically, academically, foolish distraction. He opens by talking about the trust that's been committed. He says, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Has, have you ever stopped and thought, has it ever occurred to you that you are a steward of biblical truth? The next generation will learn biblical truth because we teach it to them. Now, I have high hopes. I'll be honest with you. I know you hear me. I sound like Debbie Downer sometimes about the state of our world, but I really have much that I'm encouraged by. I feel like there's a generation that's coming up now that's learned not to trust the, the, the trademark copyrighted expert science. And they're instead, and they've learned not to trust the school systems. They've learned not to trust culture. They've learned not to trust what, how the world wants them to live. And instead, they're, they're growing up, and, and they're looking at, at their kids, and they're saying, boy, we better do something better for them. We better teach them what's right. We better give them something better to live for than what this world has given us. So I have much to be encouraged by. But I, I hope, by God's grace, never to stop reminding you that you've been entrusted with this truth. You will be held accountable for what you do with the truth of God's Word. Whether you stick to it, whether you teach it to your kids, to your spouse, to your loved ones, to your co-workers, there's a trust that's being committed. But then notice the teaching that's crippling. He says, avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. There's two categories that he's dealing with here. The first he describes as profane and vain babblings. Now, we often think of the word profane and we, we, we define it in terms of profanity. We think of it as foul language, you know, barnyard language, saying so. That's really not what the word profane means. The word profane is, is the opposite. It is the antonym of the concept of something being sacred or hallowed. We could use this term common. Common. That's what profane means. What does vain mean? Pointless. Empty. Meaningless. What does babblings mean? Is he talking about the modern charismatic tongues movement? No, because that didn't exist then. 
Sorry, I don't have anything more clever to say than that. It just didn't exist then, so it wasn't a thing. What he's talking about is he's talking about teaching, because that's been the whole context of this, teaching that is senseless in nature. Babbling, right? Like the Tower of Babel, babbling, confusion. Nothing but confusion. We would maybe categorize this in the realm of, of that which is philosophical in nature. Preachers ought not traffic in philosophy. Preachers ought not traffic in psychology. I'm going to say it again. Preachers ought not traffic in philosophy. Preachers ought not traffic in psychology. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't philosophy as a concept and ideal that can be a noble thing. It just don't belong in the pulpit. And I'm not saying that psychology can't be a legitimate pursuit and that that can't be a thing that God uses to help people. It just don't belong in the pulpit. That's not what we're doing up here. Now, I will tell you this. I mean, you make Christ Lord of your life, you'll find great peace in that. And I will tell you that if you'll use the Bible as the guidebook of your life, the world will make a lot more sense. But a great many pulpits have found purchase on and made the battlefield the mind of man. It's not the mind of man. It's the heart of man that's at issue. And the perspective has been that we need to meet all of these various charges that a world that doesn't believe God or the Bible anyway makes and levels against Bible Christianity. That we must philosophically defend God's Word. That it must make sense within the parameters of their mind and thinking for it to be legitimate. The Word of God makes abundantly clear that not only is the Bible not required to make sense to their mind, the Bible's not even required to make sense to your mind. Now, it's not to say God doesn't want us to find reason and sense in it. But it is to say this, that the purpose of the Word of God, though you'll never find purer philosophy than the authoritative truth of the Word of God, that, that the arena on which the Word of God battles in men's hearts is not that of a philosophical debate, but rather it's that of the human heart and of the will. He says something else very akin to it. He says this, oppositions of science falsely so-called. I'm going to make a statement that, while maybe not as controversial as bear scat, may not find agreement with everybody. I hope it's okay. I'll love you even if you disagree with me. hope you'll love me. I think that a great many people have taken one passage out of Peter's epistles that regards standing ready to give an answer for the faith that lies within us and have created out of that a whole cottage industry of the notion and concept of apologetics that is in many ways disconsonant with all of the other teaching of the Word of God because I think it is a strained interpretation of what Peter says. I don't think Peter is saying you have to explain to the world's satisfaction the intelligence of what you believe. I think he's saying you need to tell people how Christ changed your life and why you're trusting him and why you're believing in him. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. Pulpits are too stupid today. They are. And I'm not advocating for pulpits to get stupider. But I am saying this, that one of the great dangers, one of what what cripples biblical teaching is when it becomes preoccupied with answering every opposition of science falsely so-called. Now, it's interesting that word science that's used there. We think of science, and I don't know about you, I think of chemistry and biology. That's sort of what I think of. But the word science there means knowledge. Gnosis, right? Knowledge. Knowledge falsely so-called. In other words, we don't need to get distracted from the truth of biblical text and teaching just because some godless infidel somewhere decides he's dissatisfied with how God runs the universe. Nor do we have to waste all of our energy and effort and time trying to explain to people that wouldn't believe the Bible even if they were convinced that it was true, that it's true, as opposed to trying to win them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying we need to be stupid in our Christianity. And I'm not saying if there's something you don't understand that you shouldn't endeavor to try to understand it. But I am saying this, there is a great danger in allowing our Christianity to become a a wholly, purely intellectual uh, experience. You remember whenever, you remember in John chapter number 4 when Christ is witnessing the woman at the well? And she, she wants to debate. 
She wants to talk to him and debate. She says this, uh, the Jews say that we're to worship at Jerusalem, and our fathers say we worship in this mountain. What say ye? And Jesus said, well, you know, according to the ancient text, and if you really understood the Hebrew correctly, and if you looked at it just right, and by the way, Rabbi so-and-so, he said this, and, and really, if you look at the etymology of the language, no. He said, uh, salvation is of the Jews. Ye know not what ye worship. You know what he said? He said, I'm not going to have a spiritual conversation with a spiritually dead person. You need to be saved. That's what he said. He said, I'm not going to argue with you. You're talking about worship? Which one of those five men are you going to go to church with? He said, I'm not going to do this nonsense. You need to drink of the water that I give you. That's what you need. Now, again, you say, well, preacher, you're mad at John Lennox, and you're mad at these Christians, you're mad at Ravi Zacharias. No, listen, hey, maybe there's people that that reaches. And if it interests you, I guess that's better than watching cat videos. Sometimes. Some of them cat videos, though. I, listen, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not poking fun at you. I'm just saying, be careful. Because if the threshold for your confidence in God is that He satisfies the critics, it won't be long and you won't be satisfied. Critics ain't going to be satisfied. And there will always be somebody with some other extra-scriptural speculative argument about something I think they make half stuff up, to be honest with you, but I can't prove it. <laughs> I see the teaching that's crippling. And you know, it's the tragedy that is concerned here, which some having, some professing have erred concerning the faith. Now, some think about that. Avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, false and so-called, which some professing. What are they, what are they professing? Well, there's two perspectives. You can say they're professing faith in Christ, but he's just been talking about the oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. He's saying they set out to get them, but they got got themselves. They set out to win them, but they got one instead. The danger is this. You don't know every question that's going to get asked to you by a coworker, by a neighbor, by a family member. You don't know every possible answer to every possible thing. But if you're saved, you know what Christ did for you when he saved you. And when fitting the criteria intellectually and answering every question becomes the, the pursuit of, of biblical study for you and not the, not the Lord himself being the pursuit of biblical study, it won't be long, somebody will ask you some question that will mess you up. Not because there's not an answer, just because you don't have the answer. Hmm. I thought that one was going to go better. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. We're already this deep into it, folks. We might as well finish out. You already had lunch. I want to give you a final thing, and I'll be done. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 14. Paul says, of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about to words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Preacher, you're trying to subvert me. Yes, sir. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings. There we have that phrase again. For they will increase unto more ungodliness. By the way, let me just pause here and, and say this. I mean, you understand Harvard and Yale and Princeton, these all started out as seminaries, right? That then departed from the foundation of biblical truth and became bastions of academic pursuit. What did it increase unto? He says, and their word will eat as doth a canker. In other words, it's not just the one bad thing they teach you, but it will spread. It's like a cancer in you. Of whom is Hymenius and Philetus? He said, Preacher, who are those? I don't know, but I get to heaven. If they're there, I'm going to hit them in the mouth. I don't think they'll be there. Who concerning the truth have erred. There's that word again, swerved. Have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. 
What causes people to swerve, preacher? Well, fruitless discussions or speculative religion. When it all just becomes about about sitting and it's not the bread of life anymore, it's fine cake put under a display glass. And it's not for the nourishment of the soul. Foolish distractions, allowing yourself to become derailed, pursuing after every various charge and criticism the world makes instead of standing true and firm on the truth of God's Word. But I'd say number three, and I'm done, false doctrines cause people to swerve. Listening to people that teach you wrong will mess you up. We've been raised in a generation where... The, the idea of an eclectic exchange of ideals is lionized. It's noble. It's romanticized. That the worst thing you can ever be is closed-minded. There's worse things to be than closed-minded. Like messed up. <laughs> I'd rather be closed-minded than messed up. And when I read this passage, I'm reminded of the great danger You say, well, preacher, you know, just from an academic, you better be careful. I'm not mad. I'm just telling you, you better be careful. Because if you let those things in your heart and mind, it can wreck the rest of your life. Notice the exhortation to right doctrine. He says this, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit. You know, and I'm going to be honest with you, and I, I understand good men can disagree about things, but it would solve a lot of our arguing if we'd just root ourselves in the Bible. Good men can disagree. I understand that. Good men can argue. Some of us are real good at it. But it would fix a lot of the arguing if we just root ourselves in the Bible. Wouldn't be much to argue about if everything we said was based on thus saith the Lord. He says, but to the subverting of the hearers. He tells Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm not going to say a lot about it. I'm just going to notice this. He tells Timothy, doctrine matters. And you ought to learn right doctrine. And you ought to teach right doctrine. You ought to believe the right thing. People that tell you, well, it really don't matter what we believe. They're lying to you. They're trying to sell you something. Check your wallet after they say that to you. It's not true. And anybody, anybody that has a, a, an intelligent cell in their brain and has lived more than 30 seconds can tell you that what you believe matters. So when they tell you, well, what you believe really don't matter. Yes, it does. It does. Notice the end of wrong doctrine. Wrong doctrine. He says, but shun profane and vain babblings. Why? They will increase unto more ungodliness. Notice where these folks wound up. Verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. No, I don't think Hymenius and Philetus started out there. I think they probably started out on some lesser heresy. But that theological consequence, man, it's mean. It'll get you. Timothy knew who they were. He didn't say, well, there's these two fellows. Let me tell you about them. He just named them. Almost like maybe at one time they had traveled with them. Almost like maybe at one time they had labored with them. Almost like maybe at one time Paul would have clasped either of these men by hand and said, this is my fellow laborer in the Lord. Now they're so messed up that they don't even believe in the resurrection. Say it's passed already. Well, how could it be passed already? Only if it's been spiritualized could it be passed already. And he's saying, well, you know. The end of wrong doctrine, it'll wreck everything about what you believe. It'll eat as doth a canker. Inconvenient, but it won't stay to that one little pet doctrine. It'll infect everything else. So, preacher, what can I do about that? Well, notice the effects of right doctrine. I like verse 19. Nevertheless, I'm glad for God's neverthelesses. Nevertheless, say, preacher, this world's run rampant with false teachers. Yeah, I know. You just see them a lot more because of YouTube, but there's always there. Nevertheless, foundation of God standeth sure. Preacher, what can I do? Plant your feet firmly on this book. Because it standeth sure. But preacher, what if they find out? What if they dig some scrolls? What if they find... It don't matter. The foundation of God standeth sure. But preacher, what if they come to find out some mysterious rabbinical teaching that was hidden somewhere in a trash can on a monastery on the moon underneath a rock in Mars? The foundation of God standeth sure. Preacher, what if I finally find the far dark reaches of the internet and find out? No matter. The foundation of God standeth sure. Ground your life on God's Word. You won't have to wonder what's coming around the corner. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. You say, but preacher, I know some things. Well, God knows some things too. I wonder if you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you're His. 
You say, well, preacher, I, I, you know, I know that I'm saved. I have no question about that. Then what is it you're looking for? Mm. Say, well, preacher, what's this whole thing about then if it's not about this pursuit? He says, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Here's the real purpose of biblical teaching. It ain't to give me something to do for three and a half hours. That ain't what it's about. It ain't for me to get up and wow you with something that you may think you don't know or have forgotten or never heard before, whatever it is. It's not what it's about. What it's about is cultivating the character of Christ within us through our obedience to Him, through the governance of Him through our life. Anything that doesn't have as its end goal to make you more like Jesus Christ is not worth your time. That should ultimately be the goal and function and purpose in your life is that you'd depart from iniquity and that you'd be like Jesus Christ. Here's all I'm saying this afternoon. Maybe it would be evening now. I'm not sure, but don't look at the clock. Here's what I'd say. Don't swerve. Get right in, in, in the row of biblical truth and don't swerve. A preacher, what if just don't swerve? Your family's dependent on it. Your spouse is dependent on it. Your kids are dependent on it. Your church is dependent on it. Don't swerve. Stay in biblical truth. Let's bow together this afternoon. Musicians going to play. And I don't, we'll have an altar call, but I'm not going to ask any questions except just say, if God touched your heart about something, won't you meet him in this altar? Let him have his will and way in your heart. Let him be pleased. You hear me? Let him be pleased with how you respond in the next few moments. If he's pleased, that's all that matters. Let him be pleased with how you respond in these next few moments. Father, bless this invitation. Magnify Lord Jesus, we ask it in his name.